Well, my name is Sam, and I have the joy of getting to preach a lot. We are in the book of Malachi, and so if you don't know where that is, just go to Matthew. It's the first book of the Old, I'm sorry, the New Testament. Turn left, and you'll get to the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And there's a little blank sheet in between there, which represents about 400 years of time between those two. But we're in Malachi chapter 3, and we've got a lot to go over. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you'd open up to chapter 3, verse 6, and I'm going to read, it will be on the screen. I'm reading out of the ESV, not because it's more holy, just because it's what we've chosen as a church to preach from. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6. This is what God's Word says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you have said it is vain to serve God. What profit, what is the profit of our keeping for His charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now, call the arrogant blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is God's Word, and it is an incredibly dangerous Word. This is a dangerous text, and I say that for, for many reasons. Um, we go straight through books of the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, basically. We'll be in Matthew next. And that will take us a long time. But we're in Malachi going verse by verse. And it's somewhat rare to find uh, an entire sermon series devoted to the book of Malachi from a lot of churches. The book is uh, seldom preached. And when it is, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a sermon from chapter 1 with the scabby sacrifices. Or from chapter 2 with the poopy priests. Or even from the beginning of chapter 3 with this judgmental, wrathful, angry God. But, if you listen to enough preaching, whether that be through podcasts or in person or especially on TV, I guarantee you, you will hear a reference to this particular text in Malachi chapter 3 may not hear anything else from it, but you'll hear this one. Those who hold to what is called a prosperity theology love Malachi chapter 3. Prosperity theology, also known as health and wealth theology, is a doctrine that is created by men centered on men and dependent upon men, and it's Ultimate goal, 
is not the glory of God, but man's happiness. That's what that theology is about. The prosperity gospel, not to be confused with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, teaches that financial blessing and good health is the will of God for His people in this life, and that faith, positive thinking, uh, authoritative speech or claims, and especially tithes and contributions to the church or ministries will increase or assure that blessing. They also believe that any lack of blessing or diminished prosperity is, of course, God's curse for your failure to believe, have enough faith, or to give. So let me just clarify as we go into this passage that we, as in the elders and I, believe that the theology I just described is evil, unbiblical, and cruel. And those who teach or preach such things deserve to have feces smeared on their faces. Period. Okay? Now, when we approach this text, it's going to be difficult for us to not lean into that because we hear it so much, but it's also the default of our flesh. So I wanted to start this way because as tempting as it is or might be for a pastor to abuse this text in order to guilt his people into giving more, which is why it's mainly used today. That is not why God has given us this word. This text needs to be understood in the context of Malachi. And Malachi needs to be understood in the context of the entire Old Testament, which needs to be understood in the entire Bible. And speaking about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is primarily about one thing. It's about this unique covenant relationship between God and His chosen people, the Israelites. The Israelites who He chose, not because they were specialer, or prettier, or bigger, or in some way better than any other people, God simply chose these people at His good pleasure to love them and to be His people. So, this covenant relationship that he has with Israel is this relationship that is intimate and it's personal, it's loving, but it also is legal. It's sealed with an oath that God makes himself. I love the way Tim Keller describes covenant. I posted recently in a blog that said the best sermon I've ever heard, and it was basically about covenant. Here's how he described it. He says a covenant is a relationship that is more loving and intimate than merely a legal relationship, but more binding and enduring and accountable than merely a personal relationship. The closest thing we have to it is marriage, and that can't totally compare. It's this Love and this law relationship that comes together. It's this personal, intimate thing, but you are bound together legally. And so we must read Malachi 3 and really, I think, all of Scripture through the eyes of covenant. Through the eyes of this one-way, one-way love relationship that God has graced us with. 
has given us, has made for us. Malachi is the last of a bunch of messengers that were sent by a faithful God who time and time again called his rebellious people back to obedience. But he also was inviting what amounts to a very undeserving people into relationship with him. So it's that Lord, that Master, and that Father all at the same time. So verse 6 and 7 begins with, For I, the Lord, do not change. A declaration of, of God's nature himself. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So God begins by declaring something about Himself. He says, I am immutable, meaning I do not change in my nature or character in any way. For God to change, for Him to get better or worse, which would be a change, is to declare God not to be perfect. And because he's imper- He is perfect and never ceases to be perfect, He can never get better or worse. He just is. And what He is is right and good and perfect in every way. And so by nature, we think that God, or is how we need to think about it, He is unchanging in His love, which, again, for those who are in Christ, causes you to look at the things like, quote, judgment very differently. He's unchanging in His love. He is unchanging in His justice. He is unchanging in His faithfulness towards His people. The very things that the Israelites are accusing Him of. You're no longer a just judge. You no longer love us. God begins by saying, I never change. I am the same. And that is because God's promises to bless and to curse, which are inclusive in the covenant, His promises to both bless and curse are dependent upon Him. His faithfulness alone. Now, this was seen most clearly in Genesis chapter 15, which I won't read to you. But it's really the story of Abraham and the place where God established this covenant through what would have been a an ancient or or kind of Middle Eastern ceremony that they would have understood. And God makes this covenant, this eternal God chooses to make a promise to this guy named Abraham, not because he was, again, special or better or in any way different, if you will, than all the other options. But God lovingly chose to make a promise to this sinful man and his future descendants through which He would one day bless and heal the whole world. And so God signed this covenant, figuratively speaking, kind of, in person. Like you would sign a marriage covenant, a contract, an agreement. Abraham was asked as a means to to sign this covenant, to seal this covenant. He was asked to kill a certain number of animals and to split them in half and to put them in a line with the halves together. And that was symbolizing what would happen for those who would break the promise or the agreement that they would have. They would be killed. They would be slaughtered, cut in half. So God literally signed this covenant by walking in between these pieces and thereby declaring two amazing things. One, He said, I will die if I am not faithful to this covenant. 
And the second thing, which is even more amazing, is this. See, Abraham would have expected to walk through the covenant or pieces as well because he was the other party. But God never asked him to. So the second thing that God was declaring is that not only will I die if I'm not faithful to the covenant, I will die if you're not faithful to the covenant. Whoa. I just sat on that for about a week trying to understand the faithfulness of a God to unfaithful people. A God whose faithfulness does not ever change toward His children. Even when they're rebellious and broken and want nothing to do with Him, He remains faithful to His promise. God never ceases to be faithful to the promise He made, though they don't deserve it, have not earned it. In fact, they deserve the very opposite. He says, therefore, you're not consumed. If salvation of God's people was dependent upon their obedience, their perfection, their willingness in any way to follow, they would have been destroyed a long time ago, God says. Why? Because at the same breath, He says, I don't change. He says, neither do you. You have not changed since the beginning. You have always been rebellious. You've always stepped away from my standard. You are sinful. And the only reason I don't smite you now is because I'm faithful to my promise. And so having reminded the people of his unfailing faithfulness, God says, return to me. Return to me. And in doing so, God reveals what his ultimate desire is. It's to experience intimate relationship with his people. This is no more evident than the first verses of Malachi. Like Malachi is this heavy burden that he gets, Malachi the prophet, he receives from God, and 90% of it is, this is how the people are all sinning against me. They are giving scabby, lame sacrifices that are unlawful. The priests are only concerned with themselves and refuse to confront sin, and they themselves are sinful. They are divorcing their wives, and they're going after foreign women and committing idolatry. But he begins the letter with, I love you. I have loved you. I will love you. God desires relationship. And so the call to return is a call to repent. You could just as you say, repent, right? Turn from your flesh. Stop indulging in your sin and start enjoying God. Every call to repentance as cold and unlawful as it might sound or feel, a genuine call to repentance is an invitation to restore relationship. That's what it is. And so return to me is the language of relationship. It is the, it is the call of a faithful husband to an unfaithful bride who, being uncertain of his affection, undeserving, insecure in her beauty anymore, she is reminded of his fidelity and his unchanging love. I still love you. I am here. It's the call of a faithful father to his children who, uncertain of his anger, fearful of his rejection, are reminded of his forgiveness and his unrelenting affection. I love you. That's covenant. So when they hear this call of return to me, the Israelites appear to be unclear as to how exactly to do that. 
So he said, return to me in verses 8 to 10. And he says, well, how? How do we do that? More than likely, their confusion comes from the fact that they believe God is actually the one who's been unfaithful. Like, they basically believe that they haven't gone anywhere. They're the ones that have accused God of not being loving, accused God of being unjust, accused God of not being faithful to His promises. God said, no, I am always faithful. And they're like, well, we've been serving you just fine. Return to you? That doesn't make any sense. We never went anywhere. So God tells them, quite simply, you want to know how to return to me? He says, obey. Obey. Now their covenant relationship, again, this is why it's important to read from covenant, because you could get into a really bad place. The covenant relationship that God had with His people was never birthed or created out of their obedience. That's important. Hold on to that. It was created out of the gracious love of God. The mercy of God. Had nothing to do with their obedience. In fact, part of the covenant was, I know you're not going to obey. Obedience, therefore, is not what keeps them in that covenant relationship. God's faithfulness does. But obedience has a place, and obedience is the means and the way that Israel was supposed to grow in that relationship. Was supposed to maintain that relationship. We see that their disobedience didn't end it, but that their obedience would grow in it. God had given very clear expectations of what this relationship was supposed to look like. It's called the law. Do these things and we can have glorious, prosperous, enjoyable relationship. Do not do these things and our relationship is going to suffer. And as we look at the law, there's 600 plus commandments. It's not just the 10. It's these 600 commandments that they were supposed to follow and obey and, and do. And really what we see is that Israel is supposed to give every aspect of their life to God. But God says in this text, you've done nothing but take. I've asked you to give, you've done nothing but take. In fact, here's what he says in verse 8. Will man rob God? That's his answer to how. How can I return to me? And he says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. I know what you're thinking. Oh, here it comes. This is the tithe sermon. Because that is where the prosperity preachers rest. They love it right there. There it is! You're robbing me in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. If you listen to TV especially long enough for some of those TV evangelists, you'll hear the curse of the tithes. This is what they're talking about. You don't give, therefore you suffer. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. So we, we can't deny that God does condemn them as thieves. It's like, you guys are thieves and you have stolen from me. And he says, I, here's what I mean by that. Because they're like, what do you mean we've robbed from you? I don't know. We've been giving you all kinds of scabby sacrifices all the time. Right? They've been going through the motions. What do you mean? I gave you my three-legged calf the other day. He says, you have not brought your full tithes and contributions. If you want to read it differently, I was thinking about this on the way over, just put life instead of tithe in there. 
See how that feels. You get the spirit of what God is talking about. But the Israelites in this case, in a very legal way, they have withheld their full tithe. So the word tithe, as you may or may not know, means tenth. You've probably heard the word tithe thrown around in church often. God commanded by law, it's in Leviticus and elsewhere, that a tenth of the people's income, a tenth of their first fruits, not their leftovers, was owed to God. And all families were required to pay this tenth. And the priests were not exempt. The priests lived off this because the tenth was collected to support the Levites and the ministry and the maintenance of the temple. But as the priests received that, they also were to give a tenth. So all of Israel was to give a tenth, a full tithe, if you will, back to God. So just as a side, really quick, first of all, the prescribed tithe, right? The tenth of the Old Testament was a requirement by law. But the tithe as a legal requirement was not carried into the New Testament. And that's because Jesus fulfilled the law. We see examples of weekly offerings. We see instructions for that. But we don't have discussions about the legal requirement of a tithe. Now, we are under the law of Christ, which is a law of love. And I think it's tempting to think, oh, okay, so we don't have to do anything. Well, let's not forget that any time Jesus spoke about the true law, He didn't make it smaller, He blew it up. He said, oh, the law says don't murder. I say if you're hating your brother, you're a murderer. Law says don't commit adultery. Well, if you're lusting, guess what? You're committing adultery. So what do you think he says about the tithe? In truth, the tithe is, without doubt, a helpful guide. But our generosity, our giving, is to be a response to the generosity of Jesus. And he gave way more than a tenth. I'm reminded of, I love Jim Gaffigan. I think he's hilarious. And he likes to talk about his wife's Catholicism often. And he imagined what it would have been like if the disciples were giving Jesus a birthday present. And the disciple comes up to Jesus and he was like, oh, thanks, a pair of socks, Peter. That's nice. You realize I'm dying for your sins, right? I'm shedding my blood for you soon. You realize, I mean, I like the socks. They'll go great with my Middle Eastern sandals, make me look very Northwest. But it's that idea, right? Talking about the Lord God, the eternal God who came down and shed His blood. That is the motivation and the means and the model for our giving, not the law any longer. So back to what we're talking about. In terms of the tithe legally for Israel, we can safely assume whatever they were giving it was pretty lame. As lame as the sacrifices that they were making. They had given what can only be described as a partial tithe. So to understand that, know this. They had become comfortable with partial obedience. Because what they were required to do was very clear. So God says, I'm not comfortable with that. You're thieves. You're robbing me. And so... There are several reasons why someone would rob God. And honestly, it's the same reason why we would withhold what we 
rightfully should be giving God, whether it be our money, our time, our energy, our entire lives. The Israelites rob God, we rob God, when you begin to feel like an owner. That's where it starts. See, Israel don't think they really are robbing God because they wrongly believe that they actually own whatever they have. That it's theirs. They don't realize or remember that they were not only brought out of slavery in Exodus with nothing. They sinned and God continued to provide for them in the desert when they had no food and God just gave it to them. Then they were eventually brought into exile, which God saved them from again. They had nothing. Everything they had had been given by God. And it's interesting that God's command was not to bring your whole tithe into the temple. His command is for them to bring the tithe. The thing that's God's. See, we rob God when we begin to wrongly believe that this is our time, this is my money, this is my energy, this is my home, this is my car, this is my family, this is my life. And it can be spent the way that I want. We need to think less like owners and more like stewards, where we are managers of everything that is not ours. I was reminded when we did the men's retreat, for whatever reason, I kind of had a moment where I was like, man, so I, I'm the pastor of this church, and I asked these guys to take a day off work, to pay to take a day off work, to come and work for two days, to bless people that they may never, ever meet, and they may never, ever get a tangible you know, blessing from this in any way that we might be able to measure Huh, that's rough. Okay, wow, these guys are amazing that they're even here, right? Thinking about that. And then we had a speaker who said something I thought quite interesting. He was talking about God's ownership. And as I was wondering how amazed I was that guys would give up a weekend away from their families and all these things, he said something, and I don't remember how it came out, but he said, let's not forget that this isn't our weekend. It's God's weekend. You know, we kind of work all week to try and get to our weekend so we can have our time. And we go, what if we understood and remembered that actually it's God's weekend. It's God's Monday, too, and Tuesday and Wednesday. It's God's bank account. It's God's home. It's God's family. We would think, I think, very differently and act very differently. We also rob God when we act to avoid a curse. See, the Israelites wrongly believe that they can avoid deficiency through disobedience. And deficiency could be anything. I have less than blank. Fill it in. And they wrongly believe that disobedience is what will lead to making sure they are sufficiently supplied or whatever they need. And because they don't find security in God, ultimately, they fear very greatly losing what they have. And so they hold on to it very tightly because if they let go of it, they will experience something bad. And we do the same thing. We very often withhold our time and our money and our energy because we want to avoid what we've imagined as the earthly personal hell that we can't handle. 
that curse. I want to try to avoid that. If I give money, I won't have money for this. If I give time for this, I won't have... And that is just too hellish for me to think about. I need to avoid that experience. And as we try very hard to withhold so we can avoid that curse, that pain, what we don't realize actually is that by doing so, we may be avoiding God's blessing. What He actually wants for us. We also rob God when we think wrongly about fruitfulness. And I think this is probably the most common one. See, the Israelites are are robbing God because they actually have redefined prosperity. They've heard God speak about prosperity and they have redefined it to be something different than how God defines it. See, robbing God isn't just like withholding and storing. It's actually giving to something you've deemed better than Him. Like, none of us actually save our time and energy and money in a trust fund for Jesus to be spent when He shows up. That's not how it works. We actually, in process of redefining fruitfulness, we give all of that to another God that we actually believe will bless us more than He will. So this is what Israel is doing, and it's what we do. And to quote a line from an old movie, which I think is fantastic, called The Italian Job. It's all about thievery. I didn't search for it, I just happened to watch it. And it said this, there are two kinds of thieves. Those who steal to enrich their lives and those who steal to define them. We're guilty of both. Though we have very rational sounding excuses like I can't afford it, We withhold our time and money from God because ultimately we don't trust that God will take care of us and that life will be happier or more meaningful apart from obedience to Him. And guess what? That's the same sin of our first parents. The enemy tempted them and said, look, and they imagined a life better than what they had, happier apart from God's Word. And the truth is, God hasn't changed, and neither have we since Genesis chapter 3. And here's the really scary part. Some thieves are really successful. Right? We imagine thieves like, yeah, they're going to be thrown in prison. Well, if you watch the Italian job, they ended up with $27 million. It was pretty good. Some thieves are really successful. In other words, we can actually be unfaithful to God, and yet be fruitful in the world. And the prosperity guys are just so messed up. Piper said an interesting thing in challenging them. He said, you know what, the Bible talks so often about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. So why would you promote the idea of richness and blessing in that way and make it difficult for more people to actually get into heaven? Like, that's a good thought. What happens when we are unfaithful to God and fruitful in the world, this is why we decide at some point that God's kingdom isn't as important as our own, and we begin to determine the pain we want to avoid and the pleasure or prosperity we want to experience, and then we sacrifice our time and our money and our energy and our whole lives to build it. To build this thing that one day is going to burn up. 
that when you get that doctor statement of, guess what, you're terminally ill, it's suddenly going to seem really insignificant. In the process of sacrificing to get that fruit that you believe is most important in the world, we sacrifice the fruit that God says He wants us to have in Him. Some take God's money and they build a fruitful lifestyle. And some take God's time and they build a fruitful career. And some take God's energy and build a fruitful social life. And the list goes on. We take what is God's and work to produce what we deem as fruitful. There's some real difficult, but I think honest questions you need to ask yourself. And that is, what really is the fruit that you are trying to produce in yourself or your family? What is that fruit you hope for most? I want to see this in my own life. I want to see this in my kids. And then ask yourself what sacrifices you're actually making to produce it. You might be surprised what you're actually sacrificing. And then maybe, if you really want to ask a tough one, ask yourself if that's the fruit that God wanted you to produce at all. To quote Pastor Chris Rich, as we were processing the sermon, I thought he said something really great. He said, you know what? You can grow a beautiful or orange orchard, orchard of oranges, with our lives, but if you're supposed to be a beet farmer, that's an epic fail. Right? Look at my orchard. It's glorious and fruitful. Yeah, but you were supposed to grow beets. So... That's like the suckiest beet orchard I've ever seen. Have you asked yourself what fruit you're actually sacrificing to get and whether or not that's the fruit God has called you to obtain? And like the Israelites, we have uh, our excuses. Some sound great for why we don't give to God. And they're really all the same, actually. It's that we don't believe that faithfulness will actually lead to fruitfulness. We do not believe that faithfulness will lead to fruitfulness. We believe if I'm faithful, I'm not going to produce whatever. So God challenges Israel, because this is what they believe. Well, we're faithful. It's not going to matter. It's not going to be fruitful. He says, try me. Obey and see what happens. I love it. God just throws it down. Really? Obey and see what happens. God challenges Israel, and here's what he says. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. God puts out a challenge. And He tells His people to test Him. He says, instead of thinking so much about fruitfulness, why don't you start thinking about faithfulness and see what happens? See, all of our excuses for not giving to God, let me tell you what they're not. They're not the result of countless attempts to do so. Right? 
It's like, you know what? I tried sacrificial giving. I tried serving as much as I could until it hurt. That's how radically generous I was, and nothing happened. No. Typically, it's what we imagine is not going to happen that stops us. It's not all of our attempts to do so. I am not a prosperity preacher. I do not believe in prosperity theology. I've already told you what I think about it. I'm not here declaring to you that if you give a tenth, you're going to be rich. Nope. Not going to say that. Because it's not true. But I do want us to consider something. I want all of us to consider how we give. And I say we. I want to consider not how obedient your giving is, but how faithful it is. What do you mean by that? That sounds loaded. Oh, it is. What does the consistency of your giving, right? The consistent, regular giving reflect about your faith in God's promises not to change. What does the amount of your giving reflect about your faith in God's promise to provide? Or what does, this is probably the big one, your attitude toward giving reflect about your faith in God's promise to bless? See, our obedience never dictates our relationship with God, but it does reflect it. It does reflect it. And God tells us quite plainly to be faithful and He'll make us fruitful. And have you ever thought about, other than the prosperity stuff, like to try to stay away from that, but don't go to the other extreme where there's no connection. Like what does faithfulness have to do with fruitfulness? Is there any connection? Because God seems to make one. That's a dangerous thought. It's very dangerous. I realize that. It's been easily abused and misunderstood. Because when I say, how is faithfulness connected to fruitfulness, our minds automatically translate fruitfulness into material prosperity. Or into, you know, some kind of fruitfulness we define. Is that the kind of fruitfulness that God promises? What does He say? He says, if you'll be faithful, I will open the windows of heaven. That sounds awesome. That sounds like windows of heaven, open money doors, give me a bucket, and it rains down. Woo! I'm just winning the God divine lottery, right? That's what we think. He's going to open the windows of heaven. I bet you'll hear that on a TV evangelist. Guaranteed. Sow a seed. Sow a seed. You know, the windows of heaven in the Bible are actually often references to the rains of heaven. And what are rains for? Well, you need rain to produce a harvest. Okay, what's that mean? It means this. God doesn't promise us new lands, nor does He promise to extend our borders. What He does promise is to water the land that you have. He promises to bring that which you see as a desert to life by watering it. By making fruitful what you have right now. He also says, if you'll be faithful, I'll pour out everything you could ever want. No, sorry. He says, if you'll be faithful, I'll pour out what you need. Oh, that word is there? Shoot. See, God doesn't promise to give us everything we want. Why? Because He's a loving dad. A loving dad doesn't give their kids 
everything they want, right? If I gave my two-year-old everything he wanted, imagine the horror of that. That would not be loving. So this is a two-year-old, and I'm a 40-year-old. Now we're talking about the infinite God who is, I'm way more than a two-year-old compared to him, or lower than a two-year-old. Do I not believe that my father knows exactly what I need? And if I don't, I am a child. See, we view what we need, like, when we hear that, like, God's going to give you what you need. No, we view that like, that's viewed like, I got the wool sweater at Christmas when I wanted the Xbox. Great, Lord, I'm glad you gave me a pair of socks. I'll be warm this winter, but I really wanted that video game. Like, it's just horrible. Like, getting what I need is like eating vegetables rather than the ribeye steak, okay? That's where our mind defaults into, like, what I need couldn't possibly be a blessing to me. God gives good gifts. And He promises to give the right gift that not only we really need, but they actually really want. Because guess what? As you're withholding your money and, and saving your time for all these other things you're trying to get, you're really in pursuit of just one thing, and this is what God promises, contentment. It doesn't really matter what you have, how big your bank account is, what job you have, the nature of relationships. When you have contentment, makes everything else insignificant and irrelevant. That's the fruit of God. He also says, if you'll be faithful, I'll rebuke the devourer. God promises to remove whatever hinders the fruitfulness that He wants for us. Of course, we take that wrongly to mean that God's going to remove anything that I've determined is an obstacle to the fruitfulness I want. There's a guy above me at work I want that promotion. Would you smite him, Lord? I will. I will devour him so you can be fruitful and get your job. Wrong! That's not what happens. God will remove whatever obstacle it is for him to produce the fruitfulness he wants for you. And sometimes, guess what? That means removing some of the things you enjoy if they're actually hindering his relationship with you. He wouldn't take away the things I enjoy, wouldn't he? If they're taking you away from him? It's like pruning a tree. You don't prune a tree when it's all decrepit and yucky. You prune a tree when it's most beautiful. And you prune it so that it will be fruitful. Other times, you know what that also means? Not devouring some things that he's going to leave there that you see as obstacles right now but actually helping you produce the fruit that he wants. Like that person that you can't stand. You're like, man, if that person was out of my life, everything would be wonderful. Well, God put that person in your life because you're not so wonderful and wants to change you. And is trying to produce some fruit in you. You start looking at your, quote, problems a lot differently. Conclude this text. God brings out some relational language to take us back to covenant. And he says, your words have been hard against me, speaking to Israel. You say, well, how have we spoken against you? And you've said, it is vain to serve God. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
See, they say it's meaningless to serve God, to give to God, or to obey God. There's no profit in obeying. There's no profit. In, there's no benny for me. There's no benefit for me to do this. I don't walk around all sad like I've disobeyed you, God. I, it doesn't matter if I obey. And here's the problem. They have separated obedience from relationship. To backtrack a little bit, did you notice the last thing he said about fruitfulness? He said, you will be a delight. Your land will be a delight and people will go, man, you're blessed. Now we think of that as prosperity. We think of like, you know what? We're going to be awesome. We're going to be rich. People will look at us and go, woo, you must be doing right. Something right for Jesus because you got it all. In Zechariah chapter 3, he says the exact same thing about how people will grab the robes of Jews and follow you to Jerusalem because you're rich and you're wealthy? No, because God is there. Because God's presence is there. See, when you separate obedience from relationship, you've got it all wrong. You will rest in a place of it doesn't matter because you're looking for something different than what you already have. We don't serve or give to our spouses only when it benefits us. We serve and we give and we sacrifice, especially when it doesn't benefit us because of our covenant with them. Because of our relationship with them. In the same way, we don't obey God only because we believe it's going to profit us. We have already profited by our faithful God giving Himself completely over to us. Therefore, we obey. Therefore, we serve. Therefore, we give. Not to obtain something, but because we already have something. We don't give to get blessing. We give because we have every blessing we could ever want in Christ. Those who know that they are loved by Jesus love to give to Christ. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, I say this not as a command. Right? He's not saying, tithe, tithe, tithe. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, Yet for our sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. I love this verse. This benefits you. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. I love that last verse about work and desire. Because guess what? Sometimes, maybe a lot of the times, desire follows obedience. Your desire to do it follows your willingness to do it. And obedience always follows belief. It doesn't come before belief. Belief in the unchanging, unrelenting, unfailing grace of Jesus Christ. And when you believe the Gospel, when you truly believe that Jesus Christ poured out everything He could pour out for you, that He died in your place for your sins, you undeserving sinner. That He loved you enough to do that. That He, the One who had all the wealth and all the power and all the glory, emptied Himself for you, you will give because He gave. 
It won't be to follow a rule. It won't be to impress others. It will be because Jesus gave to you. I give, we give because Jesus gave me security as an adopted child of God forever, irrevocably. I give because Jesus gave me protection from every danger, from every fear, from every curse. He says, I will never leave you, forsake you, I'm with you always. I give because Jesus gave me hope of immeasurable, eternal weight of glory waiting for me outside of this world that's going to burn up. I give because Jesus gave me confidence to manage His stuff while I'm on earth away from my home. I give because Jesus gave me the pleasure of reaping what I sow with His stuff. I give because Jesus gave me the joy to see that giving is way better than receiving. I give because Jesus gave me the peace of having more by choosing to have less. I give because Jesus actually gave me the capacity to sacrifice to the point it hurts because He hurt before me in the sacrifice for me. But most of all, I give because Jesus gave me the eyes to see that true fruitfulness, true fruitfulness is actually satisfaction in Christ. And so, yes, 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 if you begin to sacrifice like Christ, if you begin to do that hard work, guess what? You're going to experience suffering. You are going to experience a life like Christ. Well, what's that mean? That means you're going to have less money. That means you're going to have less time. That means you're going to have less comfort. But like Christ, you will also experience the joys that He has. You will have more peace. You will have more hope. You will have more satisfaction and contentment, which is the very thing we all truly want. Even if you lose the fruit of the world, you will enjoy the fruit of Christ, and as a result, the world will see the truth of God's generosity in Christ. And that, quite frankly, is why we are here. To point to Him. And the only way that you can do that is generosity. Is generosity to one another and to the world.